fly on the colors now. It's official. I like it. I like it. And uh, very happy to have our special guest on today, Ian Kane. Ian is co-founder and executive chairman of the crypto incubator Qubit Labs, as well as an organizer of uh, Boston Blockchain Week, among many other things I've seen in his bio. Uh, so happy to talk with him today. Ian, thanks for joining. Welcome. Hey, thank you for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Yeah. So um, I guess the, the I'd prefer to start it out here with the old proverbial uh, tell us about yourself question, uh, you know, just briefly, how, how did you get into the space and, uh, and all the like up in, up in the Northeast? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I came into this space very randomly. Um, I had, uh, I'd been involved in, in local government in uh, a city that's just south of Boston called Quincy. And there'd been a lot of real estate development going on, mostly by way of residential. And I wanted to see some more commercial startup innovation uh, activity take place. So we're not just a bedroom community with people leaving and going to the Cambridges and north and west of the Boston area. Um, and so uh, got together with a friend and we decided to put together a place for startups and, and founders to, uh, to grow into the city. And we started broadly focusing on financial and government technologies uh, before blockchain found us. <clears throat> so, um, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, quasi organization called the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative uh, was running an education series for local elected leaders on potential blockchain deployments in cities and towns. And so I participated in, in that. And before long, you know, I got to know about the tech and I got to know about, you know, some of the startup ecosystem and uh, the capital providers and the whole in the whole sort of network and recognized that uh, one, if we wanted to have a, a differentiator as a startup incubator or accelerator in the greater Boston area, we needed to have something different. And nobody was really pursuing this. So this is a path that we should pursue. It's nascent. This is new. Uh, it's emerging. Um, it's interesting. It's exciting. And so uh, we just started sort of beating a drum saying, all right, we're going to create a, a globally recognized tech and development hub for blockchain and, and crypto. And, um, you know, Quincy's is going to be the blockchain capital of the Commonwealth. And so... Over the next you know, few years, we uh, started building strong relationships and identifying founders. Uh, we received uh, in 2022 a first of a kind uh, commitment from the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative through their tech and innovation ecosystem grant program. Uh, and so we matched up uh, the public money with commitments of private capital, in-kind contributions of legal and accounting and uh, built, have been building a uh, conceptual research and development and commercialization program uh, to build, support, grow blockchain concepts from scratch right out of Cubic. So, um, you know, that's sort of, that's, that's the long and the short of it, but we weren't, you know, we weren't Bitcoin fundamentalists. We weren't, you know, crypto token, you know, people. We just sort of identified an opportunity to support a space, nascent space, uh, and recognized and continue to recognize, as I'm sure we'll get more into this conversation, that, there are real interesting uh, use cases that can be applied using emerging technology to existing industries as opposed to just using blockchain for just the sake of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and Ian and I have known each other a long time, so I have an unfair advantage. Um, and I have a bunch of gotcha questions. Is that cool? 
Oh, great. Can't wait. <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a conversation with you without a gotcha question. <laughs> it's always you yeah, on the show. You know, uh, it kind of comes with the territory. Um, so, so you have Cubic, and also you have been on the Quincy City Council for many years and just recently ascended to become the president of the City Council, correct? Yeah, so um, I've been on the City Council since 2016, and... Um, I the the official vote will take place in the new year for uh, the council presidency, but I am projected to uh, assume that role with the votes and support of my colleagues, which I believe uh, should be in place. Uh, but yeah, so it's uh, you know the city of Quincy is a strong mayor for gov- form of government, so the executive sort of makes all the decisions. The legislative body, the city council. Um, approves the budget, we approve appropriations, ordinances or laws, and uh, we make uh, state resolutions, statements or refute of sort of supportive issues. But uh, the council president runs the meeting, sets the agenda with the mayor. So it's a good opportunity to, uh, you know, sort of build a, I have a great relationship with the mayor as is, but to build a stronger collaboration uh, around some of the work that we've been doing. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and does, is there an interplay between Cubic and your civil service or is that completely separate? Um, I mean, they're separate. They certainly uh, complement each other, uh, you know, uh, especially in some of the tech work that we've been doing. So uh, with my public hat for the last almost six years, uh, I've been leading the development of a citywide fiber optic network to be owned uh, by the city of Quincy. And this is a really, this is a novel project. So, you know, people, uh, residents, constituents have uh, complained to me in the past about uh, poor internet service and high cost of that internet service. And now we're at this point in society where uh, if you don't have adequate access to broadband capacity, uh, whether for work purposes at home and obviously in the advent of uh, the most recent pandemic, uh, there were people who were educating at home, uh, then you're precluded from participating in, in parts of uh, our system. And so uh, the value proposition we started building before, which was let's create a competitive marketplace for ISPs to offer internet service to residents as a utility, right? Uh, You know, sort of taking a policy position that broadband is now an essential utility as electricity is or water is because it's now an essential part of people's lives. So we um, we looked at some some interesting models and um, you know decided on uh, developing this citywide fiber optic network. We we built public support for it. We put out paper surveys, which we you know a city of a hundred thousand people. We got twelve thousand paper responses. Eighty percent of those overwhelmingly favorable. And um, what we're doing is creating uh, a layer on top of this public what would be a publicly owned infrastructure called a dynamic open access layer, and that will allow for the internet service providers to come in and compete off that line and then basically the 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 uh you know outward facing or the the face of the platform will allow you to choose what you need and uh you know at the right price so ideally we're trying to get a gig symmetrical uh internet service offering for you know residents of the city of quincy down to about 50 dollars per month uh over time wow that's so that's awesome um so typically does the isp actually own the lines too or- no, the ISP will essentially rent off of the publicly owned lines. So but is that know, is that the usual? Like in other towns, is it that way too, or is this a Quincy? Industry? No, this is this is a you know this is a uh, our own uh, our own thing. It's essentially the incumbents like a Comcast or you know a Charter or all these uh, Verizon. 
they build and own their own infrastructure in cities and towns, and they do not allow other internet service providers to uh, use those lines to offer services. And so uh, in Quincy, we've got, um, you know, Comcast owns uh, lines and then Verizon offers DSL. Nobody's buying DSL. Um, so, you know, and because Comcast will not offer uh, or allow ISPs to offer competitive service uh, and Verizon is not going to uh, build a whole new system to support Fios, uh, you know, we took it upon ourselves to provide what has been a resident driven uh, request to, you know, uh, come up to devise a solution to a problem. So uh, the city will own the lines, ISPs will rent off the lines, and then that'll give them access to offer uh, service to people. So that's interesting. Uh, and there's, there's this kind of like longstanding debate in the US and maybe elsewhere about net neutrality, right? Which is, um, you know, the use of restrictions and throttling and, and content uh, filtering across the internet, which you know, I would argue the downside of that is more of a dystopian, like you only get to see portions of the internet. And we've seen that in other countries. Does having a municipal owned fiber line, is that a hedge against that? Or would you worry that, you know, a future political regime would be less friendly towards huh. inequality? That's a, I mean, that's a sophisticated question for sort of like a basic premise that we've set. Um, and I'd say that, you know, with a, with an open access layer that we're setting, like it does allow for sort of exponential creation of different types of channels. So the city can, you know, create a direct health channel that can go, you know, as sort of like a direct pipe to people's homes. There could be an education channel that communicates through the public school system. Uh, you know, sort of you name a premise, right? Uh, it could be created because uh, broadband has the capacity, the, the infrastructure that exists already has the capacity. It's just about having the uh, permission or, you know, the right of way to actually use it, which is why we're creating our own. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't see, <clears throat> because we're keeping this as such a public open uh, pro project, um, I don't see uh, the government standing in the way, local government at least, uh, of any uh, sort of the restrictions that you know that that you just named. Yeah, and good. this model. Sorry, Alec. Just just want to throw in one here. Is this model is this the first of its kind in the U.S.? No, actually. So we took um, a model from a place called Ammon, Idaho. So we've been working with a group that's based in Salt Lake City called uh, Entry Point Networks, who own the sort of the SaaS system that's the dynamic open access layer, and they've been uh, they've been awesome. They've been uh, you know working as our uh, sort of uh, partners and uh, project managers in this effort, and um, that's where I first read about this model. So you know, cities and towns, especially uh, rural areas, have been expanding on their development of broadband capacity. Um, but this dynamic open access layer uh, is is something that's a, a game changer, especially in the, in the face of trying to open up competitive markets in a place that has, um, you know, uh, strong, uh, strong market potential, like a Quincy, which has 100,000 people. So this will be one of the largest deployments of a, a broadband system uh, with open access. And there's an article which I can, I'll send to you after this, I think it's in Wired Magazine from a couple of years ago, but saying that, you know, the best internet in the country is actually in a place called Ammon, Idaho. Uh, so there's a whole profile on this. But that, the long story of that, I think you asked basically is, you know, how do these two fit together? It's between the role in the city council and the organization that we started with Cubic, uh, you know, we're seeking to transform Quincy into the next level for the innovation and digital economy, right? So we're looking at what, what is that tech stack? You know, how can sort of a municipality be 
uh, as a service to its residents, to people, to businesses, in order to continue uh, to have even the potential to succeed in this future economy that we're all you know, working in now or planning to continue to grow in. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, um, you know, so if you would look out to your goals, you know, five, 10 years out, how do you see crypto uh, sort of overlaying in that mission? And I mean, we could take this in many, many directions, but uh, also curious your latest thoughts of the very draconian federal regulations that are coming out. Yeah, no, this is this is the fun stuff for me, because um, we we've come because we haven't come as fundamentalists to the space. We're not jaded by uh, like the, the fluctuations in the market, so to speak. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. we come with a very pragmatic view of, of business fundamentals and we understand government and we have good proximity to it. Um, you know, the space uh, is made up of many smart people who in my opinion, don't really understand how government works. Uh, and, you know, I, you guys know this very well. It's that right now and, you know, over uh, the past few years, especially, it's almost like there's been this turf warfare where you've got uh, different groups of people who are all fighting for uh, a place either for their, their tech or their token to survive. But then there's the government and the central banks who don't want to be cut out. And so they're trying to make their moves so that they've got their piece in whatever whatever's growing. So um, but within that, there's a there's a certain level of uh, naivete uh, that that exists in this space where I think people don't understand the uh, motivations or um, uh, influences of, of people in the federal government, mostly elected officials uh, in Massachusetts. We've got. Uh, two members, uh, a member of Congress and a, and a member of the U.S. Senate that uh, are vehemently opposed to crypto. Uh, you know, one of them is is uh, leading the charge of this anti-crypto army, which I don't know if that really exists, which is why it makes for such a great uh, bogeyman, right? Because it's this <clears throat> innocuous person or people without, without faces. I mean, there was just an article of this particular person uh, writing directly to the Blockchain Association and saying, um, you know, you're you're basically aiding and abetting Hamas because of your lobbying efforts to Congress. That's insane. That's insane. You know what I mean? And so, um, you know, we're viewing this much as, uh, to, to be quite frank and I guess a little more succinct, stop sending your money to D.C. This is a grassroots effort. If you're not actually educating real people uh, in a way that they can understand how uh, the tech or, you know, some of the financial aspects might be able to benefit them in their lives, uh, then people in government are never going to care because uh, you got to work your way backwards. It's, it's not this top down approach from, uh, you know, from on high that you're going to somehow influence, uh, you know, uh, people in Congress to vote for something that people don't. It doesn't matter to them. It, you know, it just quite, it does not matter to them. So we're trying to figure out in our position how do we build uh, that grassroots effort? How do we really communicate uh, in English what this space is, what it means, what it can do, how you can play in it, uh, and to build those real-world use cases that are identifiable and relatable? Uh, because I think in the absence of that, you've got a whole bunch of people in this space just talking to each other in a very esoteric language. Uh, that's that's not gonna not gonna not gonna help uh, move the needle. Well, I mean, the debate continues, right? So it's uh, it's nearly, uh, 
I guess it's nearly 14 full years, 14 full years since uh, yeah. Bitcoin was released. And, um, you know, on top of that, you have uh, a bunch of different views right now about how to scale Bitcoin. You have a lot of kerfuffle over this whole uh, ordinals, inscription, uh, extra data coming on Bitcoin, which some people view as spam. And then, of course, you have all the other uh, crypto networks, if you can call them that, that are vying for some sort of uh, piece of the pie. Um, it's, you know, I've I've been in this space a while. I definitely remember people talking about, OK, we got to lay the pipes first before we can talk about, you know, what's what's built on top of that. What's, uh, you know, what what sort of grand pie in the sky ideas we can have with all the different uh, networks or tokens or what have you, we certainly got to get the infrastructure down first. So it's <clears throat> definitely, it seems to be something that you guys are trying to focus on too, but the, the local push is very, very interesting. Um, but then all the while going on, you still have the big players now, the big governments, federal governments uh, that are probably in my view, primarily just getting interested in the tax revenue that they can uh, take from this growing. hundred percent. Yeah. But they also claim and sort of cloak it on this uh, KYC, uh, you know, anti-money laundering, which is basically the name of the bill. And uh, and then on top of that, I just a couple things here. My long-winded question. I just saw an interesting clip from uh, Peter McCormick, his show. He interviewed uh, Perry Ann Boring, who's a DC advocate for crypto, a long-time crypto uh, enthusiast and advocate. She mentioned how this anti-money money laundering crypto law was actually they sent it to the uh, to the ABA, the American Bankers Association, to help draft it. And that was not really known until they figured it out. And um, and so there there you go. I mean, it's just, you know, it's the same old story. Good old but that's not, that's, not surpri- that's not surprising to me because, and that was the only group in the, the sort of groups of uh, interested parties that I named earlier that we didn't talk about is the banking industry. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want to be displaced. There is a, you know, they're part of a larger system that, uh, you know, supports uh, politics and uh, is, is part of the greater economy. So their 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 uh, existence is threatened uh, a bit by this, right? Uh, if if the whole purpose of uh, decentralized technology is to disintermediate, those are the intermediators uh, that are seeking to be displaced mostly, right? If we're yeah. talking about the exchange of of, uh, of value or monetary functions, so. Um, yeah, I mean, that's not surprising to me, which is why I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, there, there will end up being some sort of, of, uh, of mix, right, of all these parties playing together. I don't think it's going to be one, uh, one solution, because I think as, as you continue to build those cases uh, and applications that real people begin to use, then it'll be irrefutable, uh, you know, uh, to other constituencies, uh, for you know, for them to participate. So, um, but yeah, I, that that's not surprising that the banking industry has their their hand in this because there's there's plenty of uh, there's plenty for them to lose. So, for those that haven't been there, right, and maybe you can say a little bit about it. Like Quincy is a medium sized town south of Boston, um, but it's its own distinct town, right? It's not. It's I would I mean I'm sure people there commute up to Boston. I know they do, right? But like it it's a little city. And you're talking about grassroots, like, you know, talk to the people, real issues. Um, and so what is like, what are people excited about in crypto that you're seeing? Like, what is the message that resonates 
you know, in, in a normal sized town in the U S versus, you know, in DC or Brussels, <laughs> DC or Brussels. That's a great question. Um, and that's what we're, those are some of the things we're trying to create. And we're looking at models around the world, uh, about what people are doing to be more integrative into local systems and, uh, communities. Uh, two examples, you've got Lugano, Switzerland, uh, which, you know, Matt, you're a bit closer to, they're doing really interesting things with their municipality. Um, we just had some representatives from the Lugano, uh, government come to Boston blockchain week in Quincy, um, back in September to talk about some of their experience. They were one of the first people in the world to float, um, a municipal bond offering on chain. And um, that's something that we're currently exploring. One of our member companies uh, has been uh, navigating cities and towns, at least in Massachusetts, um, to what to offer what would be the first municipal bond offering on chain in the U.S. And so, uh, you know, this isn't something that people haven't looked at, but we are, you know, at least our member company uh, is um, is is very close to making this uh, happen. And this is sort of a three phase project. Uh, first being we completed uh, a feasibility study. The second uh, is uh, will be a private offering on chain, and that's basically because of liquidity purposes. But the the third phase, which is the goal, is to create a you know resident or consumer facing platform that allows uh, individuals or residents to participate in, in municipal bond offerings at low dollar amounts that essentially align their uh, civic and financial interests at the local level. So imagine being able to take a, a hundred dollar slug of a bond that will go towards, uh, you know, street uh, infrastructure work, right? And um, obviously, the proceeds of that bond uh, on a yearly basis, at some point in time, uh, ideally, if you're not taking it out, uh, would uh, be eligible to be used for things like your water bill or your taxes. And these are the things that Lugano are doing, right? Um, we also uh, are looking at uh, Rochester, New York and Foundry, which is part of the uh, DCG. Um, they are doing some really interesting things in the community where they're you know, educating middle and high schoolers on this space and especially in terms of how to uh, you know, develop that know-how around uh, Bitcoin mining. You know, what are the fundamental education? What are some of the applications? Here's how you could potentially work in this system and then connecting them to the actual uh, you know, uh, operations so that they can have an idea of the potential of going into uh, this space as an actual career. So, um, and one other project that we're working on that would allow people to have more connection and relatability is uh, exploring putting deeds, real estate deeds uh, on chain. Because, uh, you know, you've seen many market uh, driven approaches to uh, supporting real estate and, you know, that's fine. It does it need blockchain when you could just sort of form an LLC to bifurcate ownership? No, not necessarily. But we're going to go to the source of truth, which is the deed. That's the actual fundamental ownership of the asset. And, um, you know, so we're in this position where we've got proximity to people who are willing to at least explore uh, potential innovation and disruptions to innovation uh, for the sake of an emerging or frontier technology uh, that will connect to real people that they can actually understand. Um, you know, we, I think the, the next part of how we'd like to be able to communicate, because I think it's just like, if you can't touch it, then it has no pertinence in your life, right? So we're trying to figure out how can you uh, get some of these more um, identifiable and relatable stories in front of people. 
And so we want to be able to tell some of these real world use cases from some of the groups that I just mentioned uh, in a digestible way, but also get that uh, information out through channels that people receive information in a digestible form that can allow them to, you know, identify. And that's sort of like the grassroots hearts and minds uh, effort that at least I believe my theories that will counter a lot of this uh, rhetoric that you're seeing, uh, you know, in Congress or, you know, around. Yeah. So, oh, oh that's interesting. In particular, the, um, you know, the property rights on chain, we've talked about that before on the show. Does that, does that uh, eliminate the need for title insurance? Uh, not, not necessarily. Uh, and, and I think some of those details are still being worked out. It's, it's, Hey, one, how does this map work? And then how can, a potential smart contract be uh, designed to enable uh, and facilitate these transactions, you know, the components of the transaction along the way. Um, but stay, stay tuned on that one. We'll, we'll come back on, on that one. We're just, we're in the, we're in the early sort of uh, identifying the plumbing, uh, you know, of the existing uh, framework so that we can figure out how to replicate it. No, that, that's cool. I, um, I think it was last year, at least Wyoming and maybe a, another state, uh, allowed you to create a DAO as a Wyoming entity and you could own property under that, um, which was kind of cool. Different, yeah, right? That's not an on-chain thing. That's more of a um, corporate structure, but right. in the same vein. Right. I think somebody in Massachusetts was looking at that uh, to move legislation to support similar concepts as well. Yeah. So, so this is all really cool. And I'm sure that there's people in Quincy who are like, oh, this is crazy talk. Like, what are you doing with their... With our city. Yeah. Um, no. Well, if we're talking about uh, broadband initiative, no, that's the number one thing that I get contacted on is when is it coming and for, you know, for five, six years now. Um, the blockchain thing um, or, you know, whatever we're trying to do with Cubic, uh, people aren't like, it's crazy. In fact, we, we, can, we continue to find more diamonds in the rough, like people that live uh, in Quincy or close to Quincy, or there's just proximity, or they're like, I can't believe this is here. Like, <laughs> and um, we find that they're working on some really cool, interesting projects. And, um, you know, we've been able to make some great partnerships. So we've, we've been giving out, um, you know, small developer grants, they're non-dilutive grants through this grant program that we received from Massachusetts Technology Collaborative. And, um, you know, that's a great offering. That is like the initial, you know, sort of foray. Here's some free money. We're happy to support you. Let's guide those plans to continue your, you know, sort of business plan and development. And, um, you know, on the back end, we evaluate them for, um, for, uh, private capital contributions. But, um, you know, we, we're, we're encouraged, uh, by the sort of, uh, network effects that have grown out of what is a, you know, a local effort. But as I always say, it's a global effort, just headquartered in Quincy, like any other place would be anywhere, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, so many different uh, interesting topics to pursue in the space. And, uh, you know, I've had this show for a long time and have thought a lot about uh, a lot of these things. But my enthusiasm has actually been tempered over the years because, you know, there's been obviously things that they've been selling they could do on Ethereum, which have either not scaled or they just haven't done. Um, but I, I, I certainly think that there's room for improvement on anything in the uh, TradFi or antiquated uh, public sector government space for sure. Uh, so I guess in that vein, I mean, are there any, obviously you've talked about a lot already, a lot of the different sectors, but are there any sort of other killer apps that you've seen or you really think could uh, change the game? And then on top of that, 
where does Bitcoin fit into all that? Because I still, not I still, but I, I've probably more than ever seen that that's the, the biggest source of truth, as you mentioned before, that needs to be sort of preserved. And uh, it's going to keep getting attacked as we, as we see right now, even legislatively. Yeah. So um, killer apps. That's a really good question. Um, and I wish I had, I had been more thoughtful. I, I, I like where we are. I like what we're working on. So those are the most yeah. exciting things in my mind because they exist and, uh, you know, we're moving them forward. Yeah, um, there's a lot already you've mentioned. Yeah. And, um, but on the other side, um, you know, as I said, we, we didn't come from this fundamentalist place of, of Bitcoin or any of the, any of the, uh, the networks or platforms or tokens. And so, um, you know, I, I still think Bitcoin is a fascinating uh, model and use case. Um, I think, yeah, I, th I think it's just going to continue to be um, attacked because of the vested interests, right, in the existing system. Uh, it challenges all of that. Um, you know, we we don't have any out, out of our space. We don't have any. You know, we don't have any interesting. Uh, uh, applications, you know, that either connect to, to lightning or, you know, anything like that. We've, we've uh, tried to explore some of those partnerships, but they didn't, uh, they didn't really go anywhere, at least in you know, our t past four years. But, um, you know, that, that, that's not to say that we wouldn't continue trying. It's just sort of, we're navigating in a space that, that we firmly understand given our proximity to tech and government and capital. Right. So, um, and, and that's what we will continue to do. You know, if, if the opportunity to be more supportive to, uh, you know, sort of the fundamental Bitcoin uh, use case, then, you know, we, we would of course pursue that, but. Nice. So, uh, and I think this is accurate, but Fidelity, obviously, you know, massive Massachusetts company, Abigail Johnson, I think for sure the largest you know, institution that leaned forward into Bitcoin way before anyone mm -hmm. else. Uh, I think it was 2014 when they started mining Bitcoin. I could be wrong, but it was early. Uh, any connections between them as a big Massachusetts company and, and you guys? Yeah, they've um, they've sponsored a couple of the events that we've we've hosted over the last couple of years, um, and you know they've got a pretty um, you know we we know their digital asset uh, group and. Um, their diaspora is pretty strong. So, uh, you know, the, the folks over at, uh, at Cass Lyle and Matt Walsh, and Nick Carter, uh, we've been uh, collaborating with them for the past number of years. Um, you know, we're trying to get some to know some more folks in the space. Uh, a good uh, friend of mine who had come from the State Street universe is now, uh, you know, part of their what they call the FCAC group. And uh, he had been uh, such a great friend and in, in starting to get us established in the space and making great connections. So, you know, we continually, we, we had a call with them recently um, to talk about some of the things that we're, they're working on, uh, especially around sort of um, uh, tokenization of real world assets. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're in touch with them. And of course, we'd, we'd want to do more uh, with them. We're, Cubic, by the way, is like a ragtag team of, of me and, and John. Uh, and we have been hustling this thing for the past four years. So, you know, we can we can uh, focus on uh, as much as we can handle uh, in any given point in time, which, you know, we do we do a lot and we're, we're proud of what we've been able to, to create. Um, but, you know, we're, we're just a, a ragtag team of, <laughs> of misfits trying to make something here. <laughs> that's all of crypto right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. 
<laughs> so it was, I think, because uh, we were talking about it, it's fairly recent that you took kind of more of a uh, central role in block, Boston Blockchain Week. Um, mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? What, what's that community like? What's your involvement? Yeah, sure. So um, I think before the pandemic, there was uh, there was a venture capital fund that used to plan uh, what was called Boston Blockchain Week. And um, there was maybe a virtual one in 21. And then um, they decided not to host it anymore. We got word of that. And at the time, we were, you know, just kind of coming up with our value proposition and about to secure that grant through the state. And we said, you know what, strategically, this makes sense for us if we're trying to sort of organize an effort here uh, through Cubic and, and in Quincy, then why don't we bring it here and create, uh, you know, bring that energy here. Um, but we also, at the time, uh, everyone was leaving the Northeast or different parts of the country and going to Miami. So uh, we recognized that there was this uh, huge current of electricity, vibrancy, enthusiasm uh, that was centering on Miami. And it, there was a vibe, right? And you can't do anything about the weather in the Northeast. That's fine. But uh, you can still try to create a uh, more culturally friendly uh, environment for, for the space. And so that's what we were trying to do is take a little bit of that energy in Miami, plant it up here uh, in Quincy and, and let it grow and thrive. So you know, our first effort in 22 was good. Uh, we, we raised some good money to throw an event. Uh, we had, you know, somewhere around 60, 65 speakers that came from all over the country uh, to talk about, you know, different components of the industry. And, um, but last year or a couple months ago in September, you know, we hosted our second. Again, this, this was better. We were able to uh, really build on that fundamental platform that we built in 22 we had 75 speakers from across the world. We had, as I said, these people from uh, Lugano, Switzerland come. We had folks come from Dubai. We had folks come from California and Florida and New York and uh, and in Chicago. So um, and and it had that energy, right? It's the energy that we're looking for, uh, which is uh, people came. One, they get surprised at the con, you know, the sort of the quality of the production and the content of the programming. And then we were able to successfully connect the daytime programming to some nightlife. So we've got, you know, we got more work to do, but um, we certainly have uh, a, a growing concern that, um, you know, we, we can be proud of. And so, again, you know, the whole thing is uh, if, if Cubic has this, uh, you know, a number of components to it, including this R&D program, the core sort of accelerator incubator, uh, you know, part of our effort is community and ecosystem. And Boston Blockchain Week is a big part of that. Um, because we just recognize that, hey, if, if you're not matching that level of, of energy and the cultural component uh, that exists in this space, then it's not going to it's not going to thrive here. People are going to go to other places where they're either uh, more excited to live or uh, they feel more welcomed. And that was Miami. But we're trying to support uh, that effort here. And there are you know a lot of other groups uh, in the Boston area that are that are doing the same. There's uh, uh, the Boston uh, area has a group called the Boston DAO, uh, which does a great job at uh, hosting monthly sort of meetups and, and getting the, the, the you know, uh, participants in the space together. And they host uh, an event called ETH Boston, which will be held uh, in the springtime. I don't have the dates, but, you know, again, there are uh, very strong concerted efforts who are uh, working in the face of our uh, federally elected officials uh, to support uh, this space and, and let it grow and thrive. 
Well, I'm not going to ask you when you're running for Senate, um, but I would certainly <laughs> support that. But uh, so, but Boston is like a natural home for a, a crypto community, a Bitcoin community. I mean, you have, you know, huge uh, university presence, lots of tech companies. Um, and like if any city in the U.S. is actually well suited for it, you know, other than you're right, like it's it's going to be cold there a lot of the year. And, and Miami looks great on a postcard, but um I do think it makes sense, right? It, as a as a crypto hub, um, and so that given, and, and you know, for the the people that care, Ian and I went to college together. So I'm curious, like, what's the is there a, a groundswell in the university world in Boston, and does that contribute to to the crypto community? Yeah, there are, there are a number of um, excuse me, there are a number of university clubs uh, that contribute to the ecosystem. And they're all in touch with each other. All the uh, we we the one that we've gotten to know uh, the most. We had a few startups come through uh, Cubic is Northeastern. They were one of the first to start a uh, a blockchain club, and so they're really uh, they're really ex- exciting. Over last year, we got to know the Bentley Blockchain uh, Association. Uh, Harvard's got one that's pretty uh, that's pretty active. MIT has a bunch of sort of distributed activity that goes on through uh, the university. Um, but yeah, they, we, I think, you know, there's, there's two things here. Um, I I think that there's a difference between folks who are, uh, well, there is a difference between folks who are more entrepreneurial minded and then those who want to get jobs in the space. And so, you know, where we're trying to identify founders, um, you know, uh, we, we have found, uh, that, uh, we, we've been most successful with at least. Uh, people that have worked in some primary industry for at least a decade that uh, understand how to adapt an emerging technology to a space that they've been in and understand. Um, you know, uh, I think uh, from the student perspective, I think a lot of the students are looking for uh, placements. And that could be, you know, Fidelity's been hiring uh, in droves uh, in this space. And so, you know, I think that could be with the, the Fidelities or, or some of the larger the state streets when they do have uh, distributed ledger teams, um, you know, or the BNY melons, those type of things. But, um, you know, the, the, the student entrepreneurial community, um, is at least for us and we've spent, you know, time in some of the school systems, I think it's been invasive, but there's certainly a lot of interest in the space. And I think those people uh, are certainly at the forefront of, you know, of the entire space overall, like if they're, if they're really interested. Uh, you didn't mention Boston College, which I've heard is referred to as the Harvard of Newton, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, uh, we. I, I know BC has a club. I actually have not connected with, with the club yet. Oh, my God. Yeah. What kind of double eagle? What's the, alumni, what's the alumni association telling you? The, actually, no, but the, well, talking about double eagle, the BC High community uh, has been very interesting. We had a group of... Uh, it must have been a class of 40 uh, young men that came to Boston Blockchain Week for a day, which was really cool. And I just spoke at uh, an entrepreneurship class a couple months ago. So they're uh, they're really into this. Oh, that's awesome. Well, yeah. I expect more from our alma mater, but uh, at least the high school. So for everyone, so there's you're a double eagle if you went to PC High and, and Boston College undergrad and a triple eagle if you go to the law school is generally, I guess, any of the grad schools, right? Uh, I think historically and traditionally it's the law school, but I think people have made adaptations of that over the years. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, It's a dubious honor, but um, BC has a strong community in in Boston for sure. Definitely. I don't know about the rest of the country. Um, So 
obviously like there's your political life and, and your professional life at Cubic, but like just personally, you must have, you know, started drinking some of the Kool-Aid. I, I know you said you're not, you know, bringing dogma to the space, but you care enough to, to make this, um, you know, really it seems like a life's work right now, at least for, for where you are. So like, wh- what about it is exciting to you? Like what, what personally is, is piquing your interest? Um, I mean, we, we've seen the opportunity from the get-go and I think, um, one of the things that you, you know, you, you mentioned Boston as a, as a locale and, um, being the right place for this. Um, the, the one thing that comes at odds with innovation sometimes is speed, right. Or, you know, uh, people want to move so fast and change things. Uh, but sometimes the, uh, the speed of the environment might not match the ambition that comes from, uh, the innovation and, and Boston is not a speedy place. Uh, Boston is slow. Uh, you know, it's been around for a while. Uh, the roots are deep. The, uh, the institutions have been along, you know, around for a while, the people, the, f- the families have been around for a while. And so, uh, when you have an emerging or frontier technology, like, like blockchain and crypto, uh, trying to disrupt, I think, you know, sometimes people's patience gets tested. Um, you know, we see, uh, you know, this as a component to a suite of uh, technology and, and applications that can potentially benefit people, right? And what we, uh, what's the most exciting part of, of where we're participating is that we're creating uh, a real world laboratory uh, to test some of these concepts. And that's fun, you know? Um, you know, we, in a, in a place that, um, uh, you know, most people, um, are following others, you know, this is a place to stand out. And, uh, you know, we're just, we're having fun experimenting. And it's fun because Cubic is, is a creation of our own. Uh, and so, you know, we, we've, we've got a little bit of uh, controlling our own destiny with this organization. And everybody who's in this space, it's, it's nice to be at the forefront of something because people bring a level of energy and excitement and, uh, you know, a different expertise and, and perspectives uh, to it. So it, it's just fun being in a new space and to sort of be charting uh, a very unknown path. Uh, you know, that's fun. I think, um, you know, there are, there are many traditional paths to potentially go down, but uh, something that uh, we don't know the outcome yet, I think is just an interesting place to play. Yeah, and obviously you have a very local nature to it, but, uh, you know, you mentioned Switzerland. We have El Salvador as well. Right. Uh, other countries doing, trying to, you know, and other smaller locales, geographic places, trying to do what, uh, what they can do. Are there any other uh, global cities that are kind of off the radar that you've heard of or uh, looking towards? Off the radar? I don't know about I that. It doesn't, doesn't have to be off the radar. Yeah, no, yeah. but I mean, you, you hear a little bit more about uh, friendly environments like Singapore, uh, you know, Dubai, uh, UAE generally, I think is a little more favorable of an environment or they're willing to welcome the space uh, in, in ways that might be regulatorily uh, prevented in the United States, which is disappointing for, from, you know, all of our perspectives. But, um, you know, those are, those are the places that, that you hear about. Um, but I, I think the, the point of all of those, you know, El Salvador's and Lugano's and, and let's put Quincy on that map 
is that once you develop some of these templates, then they're exportable, you know, they're replicable, we can bring them to other places, they become more relevant, and they matter, and then they connect to people, and they connect to the people who uh, you want to be influential for uh, moving uh, pieces of legislation that might matter to the industry as a whole. So um, again, the, the premise for us is, is pretty simple. It's if you don't if you don't uh, get this in the hands of, of real people, then it's, it's not going to happen. You know, uh, you can't just kind of sit around and expect because you want it, uh, somebody to make something happen for you. You got to build a, a premise or, you know, value proposition around it. Yeah. And identity is, uh, I think a perennial problem here. It's not necessarily solved other than with a government issued ID. Yep. Um, yep. I don't know if you guys have, looked into different identity solutions with public private yeah we we have um we we've got a couple of companies that uh have come through cubic that are looking at digital identity um and again i think that starts with uh a use case where where in which place or department or uh you know um which part of the system, and it, and it probably will connect to government, where does it start? It has to start somewhere. Where's that fundamental uh, place where your identity, uh, I guess, permeates or grows into all the other things or connects to? Yeah. What do you so, see? Actually, I want it, what, what are you seeing for, for that? What's an interesting... Well, I, I like the idea, speaking of use cases, I mean, this has been talked about by a lot of different uh, startups as well over the years. You know, there was this uh, Civic, a uh, couple others I'm thinking of. Uh, also, I remember Zuko Wilcox from Zcash saying how the uh, great thing about, you know, and it's obviously many good things, but one of the good things about public-private key cryptography is that you can basically answer any question that's put forward by say a legislative or a, uh, a state agency that needs to know something or even like a bar, like you need to know that you're 21 or not, but you don't necessarily want to even give up your age or your address. So you don't oh. want to hand over your ID. Yeah. So you could uh, just, you know, you could say that you're above it, you're at, of age, but you don't have to give up any more information than that. Obviously it gets complicated. You know, whose phone are you using? There's a lot of things that way deep in, in that uh, sphere that I'm, I have not uh, explored so much. Uh, but I think are interesting and I would, I would love if, if we could, you know, add some of that, uh, to, you know, the public space, but I haven't seen anything like really exploding off the scene there. And then of course you have the whole thing with Bitcoin where by nature it is not attached to identity with purpose and mm -hmm. that's better for Bitcoin. And yet, you know, we have our, uh, are certain senators in certain states and in other places really uh, going after this system and others and really trying to say that anytime you're going to interact with an agency, an exchange, a bank, which is, you know, uh, their main way at this point, or, or, or vilifying uh, transactions in the space completely saying it's connected with Hamas, which is just insane. Uh, but, but anytime you're going to interact with a licensed entity, then you basically, you know, you better make sure that that's the only way that you can even spend coins. Uh, right. You know, that, that's, that's the only, uh, of course, it's not the only way that you can based on the nature of the system, but that's what they want to do. I think that's pretty clear. They want to, you know, you're not going to be able to, no way you're going to, in the United States, be able to buy a house with some uh, custodial, or sorry, non-custodial Bitcoin. Or, right. 
something like that. So it's still a battle. I think it's a, it's a long battle. And I think there's a lot of, kind of like I mentioned before, there are a lot of dreams, a lot of hopes. Uh, a lot of them haven't come to pass. Maybe from scaling, network scaling problems. Maybe just because they're not that interesting. Uh, but I do think that the like the store of value function for sure of Bitcoin is is not going away. It's mm -hmm. just a question of are you going to be able to store that value secretly and privately however you want, or are you going to have to basically essentially own the ETF to store value? And that's that's the that's the way that the United States is going, which I think is is disappointing. But it's like we said before, that's the battle that everybody's totally facing off with right yep. now. So it's kind of, you know, back to your original question, I don't, think, I don't have any uh, other uh, use cases that I've seen that have really flown. You know, I love this idea of uh, prediction markets. Mm -hmm. Way back in the day, they were uh, trying to do those on Ethereum and some other networks. And Ralph Merkel himself, I think, said that prediction markets would be a better form of democracy uh, if we could make them scale and make them work. Um, haven't really seen that yet. Maybe we will. But and then, you know, you get back to the question of identity as well. So I think identity is the core one. If you're going to talk about the public space, you have to solve it in a safe way. Um, and then you have to scale it somehow. Yep. So, yeah, that's that's what you guys are working on as well. So, well, we'll we'll follow up on that. Great. <laughs> I'd love, I would love to see the progress there. Uh, I think that the dream of prediction markets is very, still very interesting for sure. So I have kind of a philosophical question, uh, for you, Ian. So the, one of the kind of like weird juxtapositions I see in, in crypto and maybe specifically Bitcoin is the same groups that have always been like, you know, Bitcoin was established as like, you know, a counterpoint to government as a counterpoint to federal reserves as like, you know, this, this kind of disenfranchised group has now their dis decentralized hope. A lot of those same people are, are super excited when like a pro Bitcoin government gets installed <laughs> right yeah. around the world. And they like hop on the next plane down to, you know, be at the rally. And you're clearly in the, like, there is a role for government, you know, municipal government in your case, but there's a role for government and fostering an environment for innovation. And part of that innovation can be crypto. Mm -hmm. Um, what would you say to like, you know, the foaming at the mouth side that's like, there should be no role. In fact, like Bitcoin was created as an antithetical entity to government. That's really funny. Um, it, it's just another one of those things that I view, I, I've learned uh, a lot in the local level over the last eight years. And um, the dissonance that exists in, um, in people's minds is, is palpable. Uh, and I think that's just another one of those things where people believe that they believe something, but uh, clearly their motivations uh, change or their actions speak differently. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to tell them what to believe or, or how to live their lives by any means. But um, I think I'm just coming at it from a more realistic place. There are entities and systems that exist you can influence uh, and augment those systems if you have uh, the fortitude and patience and energy, right? Uh, and so, you know, we're going to use 
whatever we can uh, within our uh, ability and uh, confines, I guess, to just try to continue to move that needle forward because that's how progress is made. It doesn't just, it's not just like this. And so that's why I think uh, most of this, I don't even want to call it a fight, but most of the development of this space is not for the faint of heart. I mean, no innovation really is because uh, it takes a long time, you know, and if you don't have a long-term outlook and if you don't move at the pace of reality, uh, then, you know, good luck. But in, in fact, living to um, that almost unrealistic expectation is only to your own detriment at the end of the day. Yeah. And following up on that, you know, what, what kind of generations are you seeing here that are getting involved or have been involved? You know, I, uh, we, we were just talking last week on the show, like, I don't see too many more boomer aged, I know it, you know, sound disrespectful, but people that are quite older, like a Michael Saylor, you know, quite a bit older than like a, a startup entrepreneur, typical in the dorm room. Uh, he made an amazingly bold move. Uh, now he's not self-custodying it. I mean, he has institutions that are helping, but he's he made an amazingly bold move of putting his corporate treasury into Bitcoin. And that's a, that's a pretty uh, elastic move, I would say, for someone of uh, his, uh, you know, I try to sound simple, but his, you know, his status, he's been around the, you know, a publicly traded company 20 plus years. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good move that I don't see too many other CEOs, like at least willingly make. Uh, and therefore, as, as you usually see with, with technology, I just think it's, it's going to be the young generation, but I don't know, that's kind of maybe my final question. Are you seeing maybe the opposite or something that I'm not seeing? Like maybe there are some, some older generation bureaucrats or, you know, local level people that, that do want to change it and maybe see that there's some hope there. Uh, and they really want to dive in. We see a mix, uh, but as I said, with the founders that we support, we have seen at least, you know, from our perspective and granted, you know, we're not, we're not a traditional VC. We're, we're a 501c3 nonprofit supporting economic growth, you know, and using the space to do so. Yeah. But, um, we, you know, the, some of the, most of the folks that we've worked with, as I said, have had professional experience in industries where they can see how this can be adapted, uh, into spaces. Uh, but we also work with young people who see, uh, who are excited, enthusiastic, um, about, uh, the promise of the space. So, you know, it is, it is an honest mix. Um, I think it's just about, um, you know, you say the bureaucrats, like it, there's, there's risk profiles, right? Uh, I always say entrepreneurship is a luxury. And so, uh, even to try to create something in this space, you need to have that, uh, comfortability of, uh, you know, and to afford time to pursue it. So some of the people who are bureaucrats might not have the opportunity to really do something as meaningful as they might believe from outside. And so they work within, and we know those people too, who work at the state streets and the fidelity. Right. Um, so, you know, we've seen, we've seen a healthy mix and I think, um, but I think it's still, it still matters to, to understand business fundamentals and core industries before you can, uh, really try to adapt an emerging technology to them. Yeah. But also, I mean, you, we've probably seen uh, over history and uh, that sometimes it is the, the, the folks who are the least jaded, who, uh, you know, uh, the, who might be able to have the most impact. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Well, selfishly, I think our generation and younger are going to take over these bureaucracies soon. <laughs> they have to. They better. That sounds very hopeful. <laughs> uh, I am hopeful. I am indeed. 
Well, listen, Ian, I think this is great. This is a good spot to, to close it. Uh, you know, as we do, any final comments? Where can our listeners find out a little bit uh, more? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you, Matt, and great to be with you, my friend Alec. Um, you can find more about us, Cubic Labs, on our website, uh, qubiclabs.com. Um, please feel free to reach out to us. Again, we're running uh, still a, a R&D program where we're providing uh, $25,000 non-dilutive grants to uh, startup founders and teams who want to pursue blockchain concepts. So uh, f- feel free to reach out there and uh, look forward to speaking with you guys again sometime in the future. Excellent. we Will do. Ian, thanks a lot for joining. Thank you. Great to see you, man.